Good morning. I'm locking my brace so I don't fall. <laughs> Sorry. There we go. <sighs> my name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zion Presbyterian Church. And if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the very last verse, verse 58, we're going to read verse 58 through chapter 16, verse 13. We have it printed on in your worship guide on page 10 and 11 if you don't have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, actually, there are pew Bibles in front of you, and we would love for you to take a Bible with you if you don't have a Bible and have a Bible in your own home. This is God's Word. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge you to vi- I, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, Spirit, There is nothing more that we need this morning than to hear your voice, to have you teach us, to have you correct us, to have you shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray that you would do just that as we consider your word this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well... (laughs) I bet I know what at least some of you are thinking right now. What in the world are we supposed to do with this passage? I I say that because that's exactly what I thought the very first time I read this passage. What am I supposed to do with this passage? There is no explicit mention of Jesus. There is no explicit mention of the gospel. Paul doesn't introduce this passage like he did chapter 15. 
saying this is as of first importance? I mean, frankly, it reads a bit like a postscript, like a PS. And in a, in a very real sense, that's what's happening as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And yet, I would remind you, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians uh, 3.16 that all scripture, scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And, and while Paul didn't have 1 Corinthians 16 in mind when he penned those words to Timothy, they are nonetheless true. This is actually God's word. And it's not just to the church at Corinth, but it's his word to us this morning. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is 1 Corinthians 16 profitable to us? Well, as I pondered that question this week, I began to think about the church at Corinth. What do you know about the church at Corinth? Imagine if you had been sitting in the pew that first Sunday when this letter was read. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? I ask those questions because for those of you who know 1 Corinthians, this is a, it's, a, it's a hard letter. I mean, it's a, it's a heavy letter. Paul, very, very pastorally, over and over, confronts and he corrects and he challenges and he even calls out the believers at the church in Corinth. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes this. He says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you were not ready, for you are still of the flesh. In 3.18, Paul implies that there are some at the church in Corinth who feel pretty good about themselves. They think they're smart. They think they're wise. In 4.3, he points his finger and he says, hey man, some of you guys are looking at me and you are judging me and you're finding me wanting. In 4.6, he says, there are some of you who are puffed up in 4.18, he says, there are some of you who are arrogant. In 5.1, Paul says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. In 5.6, Paul says, you guys are just a bunch of braggy people. Fast forward to chapter 11, where Paul begins to talk about the Lord's Supper in verse 20, he says this, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Chapter 12, there's squabbling over spiritual gifts. In chapter 13, it's clear that the church lacks love. In chapter 14, it, it becomes clear that their worship services are a chaotic, confusing mess. And in chapter 15, Paul says that there are some in the church who are saying there is no resurrection. And he says some have no knowledge of God. In other words, the church at Corinth is wreck. It's a wreck. 
It's a moral wreck, and it's a theological wreck. And Paul, very pastorally, calls them out. Proverbs 27, 6 reads, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Paul's words are clearly pastoral, but they are wounds nonetheless, and wounds hurt. Now again, imagine yourself sitting there that Sunday, the first time that this letter was read to the congregation. How do you think you might feel? Guilty? Convicted? Ashamed? Angry? Embarrassed? Exposed? What are the kinds of questions that might be rolling through your mind? I wonder if Paul's going to wash his hands of us. I wonder if we've behaved so poorly that we've disqualified ourselves from calling ourselves Christians. I wonder if we're beyond hope, broken beyond repair. My guess is that these aren't just their feelings and and their questions, but oftentimes they are our feelings and our questions. When we come face to face with our rebellion, our apathy, our fair-weathered faith, our rebellion, our hypocrisy, Haven't you ever looked at yourself in the mirror and thought to yourself, can I actually call myself a Christian? I know I have. And I have more often than you'd like to know. How does Paul, in our passage, address not only the church at Corinth's fears and feelings and questions, but also our feelings and questions, especially when we are confronted by our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion, our apathy. Well, look at 1558. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Look at 16, verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in the Lord. What's Paul doing? I think with these two bookend statements, Paul is seeking to reassure the Christians at Corinth. And he is seeking to spur them on. In love, in good works, he's, he's, he's calling them to grow up and to press on in their faith. In 1558, Paul calls them beloved brothers, which I hope you know could is easily be translated beloved brothers and sisters. Paul is reminding the Christians in Corinth that despite their ethical and theological lapses, they are dearly loved. And not just by Paul, but by the Lord himself. And then he reminds them that the work that they are doing and that the work that Paul is going to call them to is in the Lord. 
Your work is not in the Lord if you're not in the Lord. He's seeking to encourage them. Imagine how reassuring these words would have been to the Christians at Corinth that day. As I read them, I couldn't help but think back on Jesus' conversation with, the, with Peter in John 21. You remember that before Jesus is arrested, Jesus tells Peter that Peter is going to deny him three times. And you remember Peter's like, that ain't going to happen. And then it happens. And Peter is crushed. But after the resurrection, Peter and a handful of disciples are fishing at the Sea of Tiberias, and Jesus appears to them. At one point, Jesus pulls Peter aside. And in a way, in three times, mirroring the three denials of Peter, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Now you might think, Jesus is mocking Peter, but he's not. You might think Jesus is rubbing Peter's nose in his failure, but he's not. Do you remember how he concludes each of his questions, do you love me? He says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. What is Jesus doing? Among other things, he is restoring Peter. He is reassuring Peter. Jesus is saying to Peter, and he is saying to us as well, my grace really is sufficient for you. Beloved, I believe that's at least part of the reason why the Apostle Paul writes what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He wants to reassure them, and he wants to reassure those who struggle with the same kinds of questions, the same kind of doubts, the same kind of sense of, of, of condemning feelings. That, that, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ really is sufficient to cover our sins and shame, that our sins do not disqualify us from being believers. But Paul wants more. He wants to do more. In 6.13, Paul is encouraging them to grow up, to press on in the faith. Remember, earlier in the letter, Paul has said that they were infants in Christ, that they were spiritually immature. He calls them out. So using military metaphors, Paul calls the church at Corinth to an ever-maturing faith in faithfulness. He, he, when he writes, act like men, be strong, he's not being sexist. He's certainly not saying that women aren't strong. In those days, it was men who served in the military. He's using military metaphors. Hence, be strong like men. What Paul is saying is that every believer in Corinth is to grow up, to, to be an adult, to put away your selfish immaturity that has led to the divisions and animosity and pride and boasting that have characterized the church. Lean into your faith. Press on in the faith. Paul concludes his 
list of rapid fire military metaphors with these words, let all that you do be done in love. Paul knows that love without strength, love without standing firm in the faith will inevitably lead lead them down the same road that brought them Paul's rebuke. But on the other hand, he also knows that even the strongest faith without love, as he says in chapter 13, verse 2, is nothing. And of course, this raises the question, how, how are we to grow up in the faith? How are we to lean into the faith? How are we to press on in the faith? And what we have between 1558 and 1613 answers that question. In, in the face of everything that Paul has said, how can we be encouraged And how can we grow up in our faith so we don't just go back down the same path that got us here in the first place? Look at chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul is clearly responding to a question asked of him by the Corinthians in their letter to him that elicited his response, which we have in 1 Corinthians. You and I read these words, and all we can think about is the fact that Paul is asking for money. Paul is asking for money. and Yes, he's asking for money. The fact of the matter is that we were told, even as far back as Galatians 2, that when Paul first met the leaders in Jerusalem to tell them, that he, was proclaim, uh, that he was going to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And they said, but we have one thing we would like to ask of you. Remember the poor. And Paul says in Galatians 2, I was eager to do so. It's clear from verse 13 in our passage, or verse, I'm sorry, yeah, verse, thir- uh, not 13, what verse? Verse three. It's clear from verse three in our passage that the poor Paul is talking about is the poor in the church in Jerusalem. We know from other letters that Paul spent substantial time and substantial energy raising funds uh, from various Gentile churches on his travels to help meet the needs of the impoverished Jewish community in Jerusalem. In fact, in Romans 15, 25, which was written a few years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. Whenever he would travel, he would collect funds to take to the saints in Jerusalem. So yes, Paul is asking for money to help the impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But in the words of N.T. Wright, Paul isn't just interested in raising money to help those who don't have very much. Paul's also trying to both encourage and spur his readers on in the faith. How so? Well, remember, the church at Corinth is a divided church. 
You've got people pointing their fingers at one another. You've got favoritism. You've got partiality. You've got hurt feelings. In other words, the focus of the people at the church in Corinth is on themselves and each other. And it's clear that if things don't change, the church is going to bite and devour itself to death. It's going to implode. So what does Paul do? Well, what Paul doesn't do is suggest that they first get their theological and ethical ducks in a row. And then when they've got all that stuff figured out, then they can look outward and see who needs help. Instead, in the midst of theological confusion and ethical failures, even rebellion, Paul urges them to take their eyes off of themselves and look outward. Now, to the needs of others outside their own particular church. Paul wants the church at Corinth to take their eyes off of themselves, off of their wants and desires, off of their fights and disagreements. And he wants them to look at and remember the fact that they are part of something much bigger than themselves. In the words of N.T. Wright, Paul is using the collection to signal to the Gentile Christians that they are part of the same family as the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And more importantly still, to signal to the Jewish Christians that those Gentiles out there who have faith in Jesus as our Messiah and the true Lord of the world are part of the same family as they are. He wants the church to recognize that they're a part of something much bigger than themselves, that they're connected to other believers. Now, why is it important to not only be aware of other Christians and other churches, but to be connected to other Christians and other churches? Well, we see at least two reasons in our passage. First, if you or your church go off the rails morally or spiritually, there will be someone like a Paul who knows you, who who knows what's going on, and who can speak into your situation. It's for accountability and encouragement. As most of you know, Zion is part of the Nashville Presbytery, which is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. And I hope that you find that both encouraging and comforting because there are pastors and elders from Dixon to Cookville, from Bowling Green to Tullahoma, who know us and who love us and who care about us. They care about what we teach. They care about how we relate to one another. And if we get into a twist, they will graciously move in our direction and help us work through our issues. It's actually a beautiful thing. And it's for your encouragement and it's for your protection. That's what we see Paul doing in this passage. But there's a second reason if, if your church finds itself in need without a pastor, or maybe the church is, 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 is flooded like what we experienced in 2010, not Zion, but other churches, the other churches in the area will come to your rescue. They will come to your aid. They will gather resources, and they will help you get back on your feet. 
It's a very real sense that that's what Paul is doing in this passage when he, when he, when he seeks to raise money for the Gentile, from the Gentile churches for the mother church in Jerusalem. What happens if we forget our connection? Well, the tendency of our hearts is to turn inward, to be only concerned about me and my, us and ours. It's what we call being ingrown, only concerned about our concerns. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we ingrown? Or, better yet, in what ways are we ingrown? Now, I don't ask those questions with a judgmental spirit or a critical spirit because all of our hearts have a tendency to turn inward, including my own. But the danger is, if left unchecked, it always leads to spiritual unhealth. Paul wants the church at Corinth, and I would suggest he wants us to look outside of ourselves, to remember that we are part of something much bigger than ourselves, and to see the needs of others and to help. And here's the thing, it isn't just the job of the elders and deacons. The, the call by Paul to the church in Corinth is to each of you as he or she prospers. Verse 2. As I say so often, when, when God calls you to himself, he calls you into relationship with others that he has called to himself. And he has also calls you into ministry. We are all called into ministry. One of the ways Paul is seeking to encourage and mature the church in Corinth is to get them to face outward and to see their connection to other believers and to see and serve the needs of others outside the church. And this is a call both to the church as an institution and to the individuals who make up the church, which means it's a call to you and to me. But there is something more going on here. Paul is not simply being practical. He is not simply being, he's not simply encouraging philanthropy. He's also being deeply, deeply theological. What do I mean? Paul is using the collection in Corinth for impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to signal to and to remind the Christians in Corinth that they are participating in the very mission of God. That both in them and through them, God is accomplishing his very good purposes. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, that God is working in them both to will and to work his good pleasure. Through the generosity of the Corinthian Christians, God is fulfilling his promise originally given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. God promises to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. That's what God is doing. As Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, God is creating in himself one man in place of the two. I love the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was first published in 1563 in Heidelberg, Germany. And the first question asks, 
What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer reads that I am not my own. Hmm. That I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, why do I mention the Heidelberg Catechism? Because it reminds us of the same thing that Paul reminds us of in our passage. That our hope isn't in ourselves. It's not in our performance. It's not in our faithfulness. It's not in our efforts. It's not in our anything. But rather, our only hope is Jesus. That he is the God of promise who keeps his promises. And that even our obedience, as flawed and as twisted as it is, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. Paul's seeking in our passage to encourage and to spur on. He wants the church to look outside of itself. In, in this situation, he wants the church to look to the Lord in our passage, Paul encourages and cultivates our faith by redirecting our eyes away from ourselves and onto other believers and their needs. And Paul encourages and cultivates our faith by redirecting our eyes away from ourselves and our efforts and onto the Lord himself who will complete the good work that he's begun in us at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot more that we could talk about in this passage, but I want to close with this. It's obvious from what Paul writes in verses 5 to 12 that he deeply desires to come to the church at Corinth and spend an extended amount of time with them. And that he desires to send his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, to spend time with them, to invest in them. To send Apollos, who they think is opposed to the Apostle Paul. They want to send, he wants to send Apollos, Apollos to them, to encourage them, to spur them on in their faith. What does that tell us? Paul has not given up on the church at Corinth because he knows that the Lord has not given up on the church in Corinth. In spite of all their failures and their flaws, Paul loves them and wants to spend not just quality time with them, but quantity time with them. More than that, he is confident that God is and will continue to work both in and through them. And when you think about the church at Corinth, you've got to ask the question, why? <laughs> why would Paul feel that way? I'd suggest two things. Paul knows himself. As we were reminded earlier this morning, 1 Timothy 1.15, 
These are the words of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. These are the words of a man who has spent his life traveling, planting churches. He writes this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, not I was, but I am the foremost. Paul knows himself. And he doesn't write off the Christians at Corinth because he knows himself. He knows that if God could save him, God could save anybody. What that means is no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Paul knows that. And you and I need to know that. We need to preach it to ourselves. We need to preach it to one another. Because, like Paul, if we are honest with ourselves, each one of us could say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But Paul doesn't just know himself. He doesn't just know that he's a sinner, although he does know he's a sinner. Paul also knows the grace of God and the God of grace. Verses 16 and 17. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, be encouraged this morning. Jesus came for sinners. And continue to grow in your faith. Press on and press inward into Jesus. Because Jesus came for sinners. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of standing before your people and and declaring your goodness and grace. Lord, I confess... um, Even on my best day, without you, this is a complete waste of time, and I don't feel like today is my best day. Please work. Lord, if I've said anything this morning that is out of accord with you and your word, I pray that you would help us to forget it as soon as as I say amen. And Lord, if I've said anything that is according to your word, I pray that you would burn it into our hearts and that you would preach it to us throughout the week. Lord, thank you that you have come for sinners. Thank you that you invite us to yourself. Thank you that you invite us to your table. And I pray that you would take this bread and this wine this morning and that you would use it to give us a taste of you. That you would use it to grow us up in the faith. That you would use it to encourage us in the faith. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Son. We praise you, Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.